reading from Luke chapter 1, verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfil his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him, from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Good morning. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the ministers here. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you might remember there's a story in there way back in Israel's history when they'd just crossed into the Promised Land. They'd just come across the Jordan. And the leader of God's people back then was a man named Joshua. And he's walking around on the, on the edge of the Promised Land. And as he's walking around on, in the land before any battles had taken place, he's met by a man with a drawn sword standing in front of him, who seems to appear out of nowhere. And Joshua's a bit startled by this, as you can imagine. And he says, are you for us or for our enemies? He's wondering whose side this strange figure is on. But the person says to him, neither. That's not especially comforting. And you can guess that Joshua probably stiffened at this, maybe reached for his own sword. And then this strange figure adds, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Joshua at this point realizes as he suspected that this isn't just any ordinary person. And so he falls down on the ground before this strange figure. And the man says to him, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. In other words... This is the same person speaking to Joshua who spoke to Moses 40 years earlier at the burning bush. This is God meeting Joshua at the edge of the promised land. This is God showing Joshua that he's not under the command of any human. God doesn't fight for the cause of any human or nation. God's plans and his cause are so much bigger than ours. Earlier this year, you might remember another episode in Israel's history where in 1 Samuel, when we were looking at that, the people of Israel were losing a battle to the Philistines and so they thought that they'd drag out the Ark of the Covenant to try to get God on their side. But they discovered when they did that what they should have known all along, that God doesn't take sides 
not like that anyway. God, he will not simply join the ranks of a human army or fall in line with human ambitions as a kind of secret weapon. He never has and he never will. I reckon we can be a little bit like the Israelites in that regard though. I reckon it's pretty easy to to forget that God's like this in little ways. Like when things go wrong in our lives, what do we tend to do? Well, we, we tend to blame God as if he somehow failed us. As if God had promised that he would be for us like a lucky charm, warding off bad times, warding off sickness and sadness, bringing health and happiness. It's pretty easy to think that God's job is to fight whatever battles for us that we think he should fight. Like we're the commander and he's the army. And when God doesn't fall into line like we think he should, then it's easy for us to not be happy with him and and at the next performance review to sort of point out some of the KPIs where he's failing us. It can be like that. But God's not on our side like that. He never has been. He never will be. God doesn't fall in line with human crusades like a secret weapon that we can wield or like a, a genie who can bring about our plans, guarantee our plans for us. God, he just doesn't take sides like that. But having said what I've just said, in a different sense, God does take sides. He doesn't fight under people, but he does fight for people. Do you see the difference? You know, we want to tie God down to fight for us, for for our plans, our agendas. But God won't do that. He fights for those he wants to fight for according to his own plans. Now, we can try and tie God down to fight for us on an individual level or as as a church-wide level as well. So I could try and tie God down to fight for my middle-class, middle-aged, white Australian kind of causes. Or we as a church could try and tie God down to fight for our reformed, evangelical, Anglican kind of causes. But thank goodness, God doesn't take sides like we want him to. God's plans and his causes are so much bigger than ours. That's what we're going to see today a bit more in the Gospel according to Luke. Because as the coming of Jesus is announced, we also get to see announced whose side God is on. We see God saying who he's going to be fighting for. That's what we're going to see a little bit more as we work through this great text. So let me remind you where we're up to, what we've seen so far in Luke. So we saw in the first week that Luke is only interested in what actually happened in history. And we've seen that some of the things that happened were actually really unusual. And that's the point. They're unique events. Elizabeth was pregnant with a baby after many, many years of not being able to have children. And her baby would be called John. And he was going to go before the Lord to turn the people back to God, we saw. Mary was pregnant with a baby, even though she was a virgin, and her baby would be called Jesus, and we read he would rule over God's people forever. Now, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament scriptures, 
then these highly unusual pregnancies, they're telling you that a new era is about to dawn. God is doing something absolutely huge. We're talking about the greatest prophet that ever lived, pointing to the long-awaited coming of the greatest king who would ever be. That's what we've seen so far. And today, we actually get to see these two storylines that have been in parallel so far. We get to see them come together when these two women and their two babies come together for the first time. You might remember the angel told Elizabeth, sorry, told Mary that Elizabeth, her relative, was five months pregnant. That's what we saw last week. And for all this time, Elizabeth had gone into seclusion for those five months. She's into her sixth month. Now, we're not told why she's been in seclusion, but you can kind of guess if you think about it, make some good guesses. Probably just the idea of needing to explain to every nosy neighbour her story was, was too much for her. Yes, I know I'm a bit old. No, it's definitely not gingerbread. She would have had to deal with those nosy neighbours without her husband being able to speak. Remember, he, he can't speak. And maybe in the back of her mind, she still has this niggling feeling that all this might actually come to nothing. Maybe she feared having a miscarriage and the idea of facing you know, the joy of her neighbours followed by the sympathy of her neighbours. Maybe it was just too much, too much drama and heartache for this older lady to bear. Whatever the case... Mary hears from the angel Elizabeth's secret and so she travels this three or four day journey to visit her to break her seclusion. She travels from Nazareth to the hill country around Judea. And when they meet, Elizabeth gets this bigger surprise than just having Mary turn up out of nowhere. Elizabeth's baby responds to Mary's voice and leaps for joy. And this isn't just the usual weird kicking of a baby that goes on. Elizabeth at the same time is filled with the Holy Spirit herself and she recognises that this is a sign from God and so she says to Mary, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear but why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now Elizabeth isn't just saying here to what do I owe the privilege of your visit, it's much more than that. Why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Her rhetorical question here recognises that Mary's baby is her Lord. And so her question captures the real question. Why? Why her? Why is she so privileged to be a part of the work that God is doing? This dawning of a new era. It's a fair enough question. Why is God choosing Elizabeth and honouring her like this? And for that matter, why is God choosing Mary and honouring her like that too? Why is God bringing about his huge plans through these two women in particular? One who's old, who's been unable to have kids, and so in that culture, in her own eyes and in the eyes of her neighbour, they saw it as a disgrace. How awful is that? You can just imagine the heartache she must have felt for most of her life. And then the other woman, young, probably just a teenager, unmarried. And in that culture, not greatly valued at all, not considered significant. So why is it that God sees them so differently? Why is it that he's on their side? 
Well, we get to see something, some part of the answer in what Mary says next. What happens next is that Mary responds to Elizabeth with a poem, which might seem a bit weird to us. Well, it does to me anyway. To me, if I'm sort of reading this a bit too flippantly, it feels like a Disney kind of musical, which I'm not a huge fan of. But if you put yourself in Mary's shoes, you can actually see that this poem is the perfectly natural response. So first of all, imagine you were Mary, right? As you arrive at Elizabeth's place, you're probably maybe two weeks pregnant. So you've, you're not really able to tell in any way that you're pregnant yet. And you remember what the angel said to you vividly, but at the same time, you're wondering, have I somehow imagined this? How am I even going to explain this to Elizabeth? What am I going to even say? What if she's not pregnant at all? But then you arrive at Elizabeth's place, and sure enough, even though she's not a young lady, and she hasn't been able to fall pregnant all these years, it's clear that she's pregnant, five months. There's no way that that's just a food baby. And then suddenly, as soon as you arrive... It's not just her belly that confirms things. The Holy Spirit prompts Elizabeth to confirm everything that the angel said to you before, well, really, you've only just had time to say, hello, Elizabeth. And so naturally, Mary's response is one of overwhelming joy to have someone that she can finally celebrate the good news with. But she doesn't just say to Elizabeth in typical teenage fashion, yeah, I'm heaps happy, hey, I'm totally stoked. She responds with a poem, or at least most teenagers I know don't respond with poetry anyway. But again, if we put ourselves in her shoes, Mary's shoes, then you can see that this is also the perfectly natural way for her to respond. Someone like Mary, someone who would have been shaped by Scripture, steeped in Old Testament Scriptures her entire life. She would have been raised knowing the Psalms and speaking the Psalms for herself to express her own emotions. And so it's completely natural for her to respond to God in the, in the language and the words and the ideas of Scripture. And that's what we see in this poem. See, she's not so much quoting one place here. She's bringing together many prayers and poems and songs from Scripture. Now, I've, I've got my own poem for you that kind of illustrates this, okay? It's pretty bad, so you might want to brace yourself. See if you can trace where you're getting my ideas from. Okay, it's, it's a poem about how great Australia is. Are you ready for it? You're not, but here we go. <laughs> Australians all let us rejoice, we who come from the land down under. With sunburnt plains and flooding rains, can't you hear, can't you hear the thunder? With golden soil and wealth for toil, we're respected by our foes. Wherever I waltz, wherever I roam, I still call Australia home. For merry, merry kings of the bush are we, so who'll come appraising Australia with me? Now that's patriotism. I don't know why you're clapping. That's patriotism at its absolute worst. It's a lot of things at their absolute worst. But it illustrates the point. You know, does it feel familiar, those of you who, who grew up here? You know, does, it, does it sound familiar? Can you, can you see where I've drawn my ideas from? I reckon there's at least seven kind of iconic Australian works in there. And it took me, would you believe it, all of about one minute to compose. <laughs> Such quality. Because really all I'm doing is I'm reflecting back, you know, the culture, the world I grew up in. 
Now, what we have in Mary's poem is not sort of sickly patriotism like that or bad poetry. What we have is a blending of all sorts of Old Testament ideas and images and illusions and hopes and dreams. Mary, she responds to what God is doing in the language and and the imagery that's completely natural to her. Like 1 Samuel chapter 2, where when in this uh, point in Scripture... Hannah prays to God when she has a baby and she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. Or like David in in Psalm 34, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. And maybe as as Mary's kind of walked that four-day journey to visit her relative Elizabeth, maybe she's had... Words like these going through her head and she's voiced it in her own words. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Can you see whose side God is on in her words? That's what we see in this poem. Who is God mindful of? Mary, in her humble state in her lowly state, in her weakness, God is on her side and he is mighty. But if you think about this song, this poem, what really stands out is the way that what Mary says actually doesn't apply only to her. Her situation is quite unique, right? She's miraculously the mother of the Son of God. Her situation is unique but her song is, is actually quite generic. She initially speaks in the first person of, of what God's done for her, and she doesn't give that many specific details. But then she broadens the picture out to talk about what God's like for everyone. What Mary's poem shows us here is that even in these really extraordinary events, God, he's actually just being himself. God is actually just being true to his character. These events, they might be unique, but God's reason for doing them is completely consistent with who he has always been and who he will always be. It's not just Mary who experiences God's kindness. Look at verse 51. She says, God has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. And again, we see whose side God is on. God is on the side of the humble. He lifts up the humble, the lowly. In verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. God is on the side of the lowly, the humble. That's His character. God takes up the cause of those who cannot take up their own cause and fight for themselves. What we're getting in this poem is Mary's interpretation of what God is going to be doing through this baby that's just about to be born. God is uniquely doing in Jesus what he's always done in history. This is, yet again, God lifting up the humble, the lowly. This is, yet again, God bringing down the proud. And this is how he's going to do it once and for all time, through this baby. God's going to bring about a great and final reversal. Do you see whose side God's on? People like Mary. People like Elizabeth. 
the vulnerable, the poor, the unimpressive, heartbroken people, people dismissed by others, seen as a failure, seen as damaged goods, a disgrace. God is on the side of the humble, the lowly, the hungry. Now don't hear this wrong. Mary's poem's not trying to say that you know, God's a member of the woke left or something like that. In this day and age of identity politics, it's, it's easy to read who, try and read who God is against the backdrop of our current world. But Mary is calling on us to see who God is against the backdrop of who he's always shown himself to be in Scripture. See, God, he's far more committed to the lowly than any progressive. God is on about a far deeper love, a far more radical cause than them. God doesn't champion the cause of the lowly from an inner west suburb in Sydney or a Melbourne suburb or even the comfort of Modbury. God is so committed to the lowly that he identifies with them completely. He owns their cause from the womb of one of them. Mary is carrying this baby who is the son of God, the king who will rule over God's kingdom forever, the Lord himself. He comes to a lowly girl. He's born to be lowly so that he can bring about the great reversal, the lifting up of the lowly and the bringing down of the proud. Now, in Mary's poem, did you notice where pride is located? Have a look at at verse 51. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Literally, this is those who are proud in, in the thoughts of their hearts. This is about an attitude of pride that starts with how we think about God and then overflows to how we think about others. This is about believing we know better than God, believing that God's way is not good enough for us, believing that we're more loving, more informed than Him, believing that we don't need Him or need to take notice of Him. It's the kind of pride that that the rich are especially prone to. Those who are privileged and have power are especially prone to be proud before God because they're not constantly reminded of their need for Him. But it's not just the rich and powerful who can have this kind of pride. It's any of us. God is not on the side of the proud. God is on the side of those who humble themselves before Him and who look to him for help. The people that Jesus lifts up, they're not just the economic lowly. You know, being poor doesn't automatically make God on your side. That's not the point. This is about our attitude toward God. Look back at at verse 50 where we see this. See, Mary says, God's mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. This, this is always who God helps, those who fear him. And look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. See, whose side is God on? God is on the side of those who humbly look to him for help. His heart is for those who cry out to him. And his heart is against those who in their hearts oppose him and oppose the lowly. God's on the side of all whose hearts are soft towards him. And you know, you see this time and time again in the life of Jesus. 
Have a think about it, what happens next. Who gets the privilege of first hearing the great announcement of the birth of Jesus? Lowly shepherds. Who are the first people that Jesus calls to follow him? Well, Peter's one of them. And listen to what he says to Jesus. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He recognizes his lowliness before God and he softens his heart towards Jesus. And Jesus doesn't reject him. He says, don't be afraid. Jesus touches lepers, people who were outcast because of their disease, the lowest of the low, and he heals them. He lifts them up. Jesus calls tax collectors, people who were despised and who'd been brought low by being rejected by their peers. And in their lowliness, Jesus welcomes them and they soften their hearts and look to God for help. He heals foreigners, sons of widows, a prostitute who throws herself at his feet, whose tears are falling on his feet and she's wiping his feet with her hair and others are looking on with disgust that he would even let someone like that touch him. She's kissing his feet and Jesus looks on her with love as she throws herself on God's mercy and he says, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. No matter who comes across Jesus' path or what they've done, what matters to him is only a heart that humbles itself before God and looks to him so that he can lift them up. Even the rich, Zacchaeus, who probably at one time was proud, a traitor, a sinner. Jesus even seeks him out and gives him the chance to humble himself before God. And when he does, Jesus doesn't turn him away. He transforms him so that he gives away half of his wealth to the poor and restores what he's cheated from other people. See, in Luke, you see broken person after lowly person come to Jesus and they find in him their greatest ally. Someone not come to fight against them, but to fight for them. God is on the side of those who humbly look to him, whatever their background. Anna McGahn has um, recently written a book called Metanoia. Metanoia is a Greek word which means a, a changed mind or a changed heart, repentance, that kind of idea. Um, this is her book here. She's an Australian actress who, like many people, felt lost and broken in this life. And she, she writes that she felt that her value was tied up with her body, how she looked and what she did with her body. And at a really low point in her life, she's in a hotel room and, and she knew there's a Gideon Bible there and so she reads it. And uh, watch this clip. It's from Eternity Magazine's website where she's interviewed. And see what she found uh, in that Gideon Bible. I expected to meet a Jesus that was on the side of Christians and of the people that I, at that time, didn't identify with. I, when I first read the Bible, it was a Gideon Bible that I knew would be in the drawer of the hotel room I was staying in, and I read it to convince myself that it wasn't true. And I was so rejected and broken and this person just disarmed me because 
it was so personal. I, I just, as soon as I read it, I was like, this is, there wasn't even a question of, is this true? And it, as soon as I started to read it, I was like, well, this is the story that I, that I know I believe. And this person inside of it just sort of came out of the page and was on my side and was my friend. And I felt this deep alliance from him, this just this acceptance of like everything that you are, the entire mess that you are, exactly as you are right now, I am with you. And I just felt like I had an ally in Jesus when I didn't have anybody on my side. Anna found to her surprise, Jesus is for people like her. Uh, God really is on the side of the lowly, of those who are humble, who look to him, the humble who look to him to lift them up. No matter what our background is, actually, that's God's heart. You know, no matter who we have been, but who we are, that we would humble ourselves before him, looking to him. In this poem, Mary's poem, do you notice there are really only two groups of people? There's those who are proud towards God in their hearts. Or there are those who are lowly, looking to God to lift them up. So as we come towards the end, let me ask you a couple of questions. Which one are you? Who are you? Are you the proud or are you the lowly looking to God? See, hopefully we are the lowly. But is this really how we think of ourselves? It's certainly not how the world thinks we think of ourselves. They think of us Christians as proud and self-righteous. But we must never let that ever be true of who we are. We need to remember we are the lowly who look to the God who promises to lift us up. And this should impact everything. It should impact how we act. It should impact how we, we see ourselves and how we see others. God's not on the side of the religious. He's on the side of the lowly, the humble, who look to him. God's not on the side of Trinity Church Modbury. He's on the side of the humble, the lowly, who look to him. He's on the side of those who throw themselves on Jesus. Now, hopefully that's all of us. And if it's not you, why don't you humble yourself today and throw yourself on Jesus, your greatest ally, if you want to know how to do that, come and talk to me. But even if we have done that, I reckon it's easy for us to forget who we are. You know, preaching, it's actually a bit of a balancing act because at any given week, some of us in our hearts are inclining back towards pride. And if that's you, then you need to be reminded that God is the one who humbles the proud. But at the same time, some of us in our hearts are inclined towards feeling broken and lost. And if that's you, you need to be reminded of God's mercy, reminded of, of his character, of his love for you, that he longs to lift up the lowly. But sometimes, unfortunately, it's the proud who walk away comforted and it's the broken who leave feeling crushed. We've got to get this right by keep on looking to Jesus, the one who humbles the proud and the one who lifts up the lowly. See, Jesus, he won't fight for us like a magic genie his love is deeper than that. His agenda for us is greater. He conforms us to his plan. It's a plan where he reverses the mess of this world with all its sadness 
when he returns. Through Jesus, God will undo all injustice, all evil, all sadness forever. And I don't know about you, but, but the God who does this for us through Jesus, it, it moves my heart to respond like Mary. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. But there's something else that we should take away from this. And that is, if God's on the side of the lowly who look to him, then don't you reckon this should impact whose side we're on? If God's on the, on the, the side of the lowly who look to him, shouldn't we be on their side too? And so, this is our final question. Whose side are you on? The lowly or the proud? Now, if you're anything like me at this point, you might be inclined to want to sort of tick mental boxes, count up how many compassion children you've got and that sort of thing. But it's not really the point, because this is a character thing. This is something that God is constantly shaping us in and then needing to reshape us in. It's an inclination and a character that God grows in us as we walk through life with him. As we see more and more of who God is, we see that he he longs for the lowly to cry out to him and find hope and joy. And as we walk with Jesus, we share that heart more and more. We share that heart for the lowly, not just the economically lowly or the socially lowly or the physically lowly. We share God's heart to take Jesus to the broken, the lost, the ones who know that they're in need, even if they don't know that what they need is Jesus. Our heart is to see them find joy and hope and meaning in the God who is their greatest ally who will fight for those who are longing, looking and hoping for him. And it's not always the people we would expect. Quite often the most vocal people against God are the lowly broken ones who in their hearts are actually longing and looking and hoping for God. They've experienced the pain of this world, sometimes at the hands of those claiming God on their side. They're thinking Jesus is for people like those who've hurt them when actually Jesus is for people like them. And if we're going to walk in, in Jesus' footsteps, then we need to be for them, not as their judge, but pointing them to the God they don't know, who, fight, who fights for the lowly who look to him. How do you see the person who's, who's an ice addict when you come across them? How do you see the person who, for whatever reason, is, is lonely and rejected by others, sometimes for good cause? How do you see the person who lives in a way that you know is not in line with how God wants them to live? Do we look on proudly? Or like Jesus, do we look on with love, longing to see them lifted up by the God who loves them? Let me pray for us. Father, you are an amazing God and your heart of love is overwhelming. Lord, you are a holy God more holy than we can imagine. And yet, Lord, you stoop in Jesus so tenderly to lift us up, people who don't deserve you by any stretch of the imagination. Lord, we thank you that you are on the side of those who humble themselves before you and look to you. And Lord, please make that be us. Help us not to be the proud ever. And Lord, help us to be like you more and more on the side of those who are lowly, pointing people to you, the God who loves them and wants to fight for them. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.